0: Hey, it's Mark. The first rule of podcasting, don't talk about the podcast. But at the risk of appearing self-promotional, the always entertaining Justin Steinman, who hosts the very successful, definitively speaking, industry show, agreed to join us and offer his biggest do's and don'ts. His show is kind of like ours in that it's a big tent for a lot of topics that are tangentially related to what his company does. In our case, it's healthcare marketing writ large. In Definitive's case, they're a real-world data company, so the show features data-driven conversations on healthcare. But he's got guests from the digital therapeutics realm to new startup technologies coming out, drug development, you name it. In the interview, Jason talks everything from the importance of establishing a regular episode cadence to how he books guests and things about his audience. Many of us are doing what he calls edutainment, whether it's a podcast, video series, or some other form of B2B content. And whenever someone successful offers to break down their own creative process, it's a lean forward moment. So communicators of all stripes in healthcare marketing should find this interview informative. This week, housekeeping rules for health podcasters. And let's just hear with a health policy update.
1: Hey, Mark. Today, I'll give a rundown of President Biden's new executive order that aims to establish regulation around AI in healthcare.
0: And Jack, what's trending in healthcare this week?
2: This week, we're talking about the FDA's warning about eye drops, Lesh is coming to us with the top nurses on TikTok, and I review pain hustlers on Netflix.
0: I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ
1: large.
2: Please be joined by recurring guest, Chief Marketing Officer of Definitive Healthcare, Justin Steinman. Justin, how are we doing today? Great. Thanks for having me back. Happy to be here. Happy to have you back. And it's kind of a meta episode, if you will, because we're obviously on The podcast, but we're gonna be talking about podcasts. I wanted to start by talking about your podcast, definitively speaking, and kind of give me the lay of the land in terms of how it originated and what was the intended goal. And then we can get to the specifics of actually launching it, recording it, all that sort of stuff. Sure. So
3: definitively speaking, we're about 40 episodes in right now, and it's been going on for about a year and a half. And the impetus behind it was we wanted to establish some thought leadership in the healthcare market. So so Definitive healthcare is in the business of helping people who want to sell into healthcare understand, win, and compete in that market. And so, if we want to do that, we need to raise our brand awareness. We also, as everybody probably listening to this podcast is suffering the same thing as I am, we have a very limited marketing budget right now. Uh, times are tight. And so, our CFO is scrutinizing every dollar. And so, we said, we don't have money for a big advertising campaign. So how can we generate some good thought leadership and really associate definitive healthcare with the idea of healthcare commercial intelligence, helping you understand the healthcare market? And thus the idea of the podcast was born. But there are, there are a couple ground rules and a couple sacred cows, one of which is that we never, ever, 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 ever promote Definitive Healthcare on the podcast. The only thing you'll ever hear me say is that it is sponsored by Definitive Healthcare and I am the CMO of Definitive Healthcare. That's it. We don't talk about our products. We don't talk about what we can do. Uh, we've only had one customer on there and that was actually because we we're talking to someone in a different department from that customer. It was a big conglomerate. And so... The important reason is the moment people smell that your podcast is promoting yourself, click, bye bye. So, mm-hmm. if all they ever get from this podcast about definitive healthcare is, hmm, definitive healthcare data, insight into the healthcare market
2: that was entertaining, that's like a huge win for us. That's all we're looking for out of it. It's interesting to hear you talk about, obviously, the ground rules that you have in place. So there, there is some sort of you know fidelity to what you're doing and some integrity. I am kind of curious maybe how things have changed since launch. I'm sure there are best practices or things that you've tweaked along the way where you're like, we did this at the start, but maybe this is a little bit better for our audience, better for the listening experience. Can you kind of clue us into what some of those may have been?
3: Yeah. So probably the biggest change was for figuring out who's going to be in the studio with me. And so we're in the business of what I call edutainment, right? We want to educate you. Mm -hmm. We want to entertain you a little bit. And at the beginning, we had a couple of folks in the studio with me in addition to our guests. And there was somebody from our product management team, someone from our customer team, someone from our professional services team. And what happened was the conversations got too unwieldy. Another one of the sacred rules of definitively speaking is that it's all about the guest. And we really try to tailor the conversation. I spent a lot of time recruiting interesting people, people who I'd like to have a beer with and learn from and really ask them in depth, good questions. So they share their expertise. It's never about us. And I found by having these guests from inside definitive as kind of my co-hosts. It it just got too unwieldy and we couldn't have good conversations and everybody had to comment on what the guest said and that didn't make for a good listening experience. And so we streamlined that out. I will occasionally now have one other person from DH join me, but it's very rare. It's really now all about bringing on
2: the guest and what he or she has to say to the audience. I'm sure that there are leaders in our audience who, whether they're at agencies or healthcare companies of any sort, are probably looking at this and they've probably seen it across the board with different organizations saying like, we have a podcast, we have a video series, we have some form of edutainment to your point, which has caught on the past couple of years, certainly since COVID put everything online. Is there any sort of advice that you would pass along to them who are like, I want to be able to start, but I don't even know where to begin. I don't even know where to get the best you know, recording equipment per se. So the recording equipment is not my area of expertise. We have got, uh,
3: ironically, (laughs) a uh, sound studio happened to be in our offices when we moved in here during the pandemic. And so I've got this lovely soundproof studio and a fantastically talented multimedia engineer sitting on the other side of the window that nobody here can see. And he got all the technology. He'd done podcasts and internal trainings at previous companies. And so we hired him in-house. This is only one of his many jobs. So he handles all the technology piece of it. Some of the most important advice I would give you, though, if you're going to start a podcast, is you really got to be committed. How many podcasts are out there that have one, two, three episodes? Right? We have said that we drop every Thursday, every other Thursday, like clockwork. Every other Thursday, we drop usually in the mornings, uh, no later than noon. So people start to get that expectation that it's always going to be there. The other thing that we have done is we book our guests weeks out. So we're sitting here now at the beginning of September. I've got a committed schedule and a guest I'm going to record that take me right now all the way through the end of November. So I'm not scrambling for content and worrying about, oh my God, I got to find somebody. Oh, I got hit my deadline. I'm going to get a lower quality, someone not as interesting just to fill a slot. No, because we're working so far ahead, we had this commitment, we have this regularity. Uh, And then the final piece of advice that I would say is, at least in our podcast, it really is all about the guest. I personally recruit a lot of the guests. I'm using my own personal network. I don't outsource this. This isn't like, you know, hey, who do you got? This is like people that I've collected from my 25 plus years of working in the healthcare industry. I've met a lot of fascinating people on the way and thank God I saved their emails. And so I've reached out (laughs) and personally invited them, recruited them. I always do a prep call with them where I always go and say, hey, what do you want to talk about? How can we make this interesting? What's your area of expertise? Let's try to find something definitely interesting potentially controversial or mildly controversial where we're going to get people to want to listen
2: and tune in. And so those are some of the tips and tricks around uh, how you can make it successful and i kind of wanted to pick up on that last point because you talk about maybe going into areas that are more provocative in nature and obviously you've had some episodes about ai like i think every healthcare leader has had this year but you've also talked about the nursing shortages and other areas that definitive obviously has your data and insights you're able to pull from how do you when you go about the different topics is it like okay we talked about ai so maybe we'll revisit in a couple weeks or what what really speaks to what topics you're going to go through on the show. Because I think that's an important part of the thought leadership thing that maybe people don't always have figured out.
3: It is. And so we talk about this podcast. Someone always says, well, what's your core audience? And I always say our audience is someone who has a Wall Street Journal working level knowledge of healthcare. You don't need to be a clinician. You don't need to be a hospital executive. You need to read the journal, you need to read the Times to understand what's going on in the healthcare industry. We're very much a business of healthcare podcast. Now, the good news about a business of healthcare podcast is that it's very broad. Uh, I happen to read a lot about the healthcare industry, nature of my job, also my personal interest. And so I'm always catching different trends and different ideas. So how did care change as a result of COVID? That was a big topic last year. I'm personally fascinated by all of the digital therapeutics and the new technologies coming out. Well, thankfully, there's a lot of them. So I kind of go and I find the cool ones and I get as high as I can at the organization, president, CEO, chief product officer, bring them on to talk about what they are doing. If we have done something around staffing, then we're not going to go and do recruiting for the next one. I'm going to punt that down the road for six months. But maybe we'll go and do something around hospital operations, drug development. Lord knows that's a hot topic, and there's so many different angles of it. So that's been a recurring theme. How do you optimize drug development? And then I try to think about different angles that I can get to. So, for example, one avenue of drug development was we had somebody from a surgeon from the University of Maryland Medical Center come on and talk about why he thinks. Surgeons are the best people to innovate and do drug development. That's kind of an interesting take, right? You're going to listen to that and go, what the heck is this guy talking about? And if that's your reaction when you hear it, I've scored. I want you to say, what the heck is this guy talking about? Cause then you're going to tune in. So we're always trying to find interesting angles and skate across healthcare so that you're never getting the same thing.
2: So I don't want to be too narrowly dialed in on one segment of healthcare or the other. I know the mention of drug development definitely piqued the interest of some in our audience who obviously come from the pharma and biotech side. I do want to play devil's advocate for a second because I'm sure there are leaders who say, yeah, this all sounds great. And they may listen to a lot of podcasts too, but they may also put together the argument that there's an oversaturation of podcasts that we've already hit the peak. And now it's just people making podcasts. And yeah, even if I have a great idea for one, Who's gonna say that somebody's actually gonna listen? What would you say to maybe some of the skeptics or the doubters that are in the audience saying, Yeah, even if I wanted to try, it's such a an uphill battle to try and actually gain any sort of traction?
3: So I actually would say you're right. And I think it is oversaturated. And I think if you're going to do something, don't just be another voice. You've got to come up with a unique angle that's going to add something to the conversation. You've got to be passionate about this. So, our unique angle is that we take a data driven look at healthcare. And so, I show up on every podcast armed with stats. I do a ton of research myself. Again, I don't outsource it to anybody inside the company. Like, I'm sitting there, like, in front of the internet, like downloading, reading research reports, going to NIH, you know, using our own internal data. Our angle is it's a data-driven conversation because there's a lot of podcasts, people just rubbing their stomachs and going, I think this, I think that. We're never I think. We're like, hey, there are this many people with this disease. It increased or decreased by X percent. What does that mean for someone trying to build a medical device in that market? That's like a fact-focused conversation. The other thing is you got to find a host who really wants to do this. This is not for the faint of heart who just wants to get on there and is uncomfortable. So I always talk about the fact I was the editor in chief of my college newspaper. I was the editor in chief of my high school newspaper. I'm passionate about finding interesting people and talking to them. So for me, this isn't even a labor of love. This is just like fun. I get to talk to really interesting people and I use this as a reason to talk to really interesting people. And I think my passion and interest in the guests comes through and makes it entertaining. And so that's kind of that angle. Like My interest in other people combined with the data to have that conversation, that's our
2: unique thing. That's what we're trying to bring to the podcast marketplace. It's interesting to hear you talk about your background as uh, an interviewer of of sorts with your uh, newspaper background and obviously how that's translated over into doing the podcast. Transitioning a little bit off of the podcast itself, I know a couple of months ago when we talked, you were talking about you know the marketing challenges that you alluded to earlier. They're facing a lot of healthcare organizations. Obviously, you are in the C-suite of definitive healthcare. As it stands right now in the middle of September, what is your sense for where things are? I think obviously inflation has calmed down a little bit, but there's obviously concerns about layoffs and whether or not it's gonna be a soft landing from the recession, whether there could be another uptick going into an election year. How does that all factor into you know, the marketing leaders' perspective?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And if I could really predict the economy, I would hang up the podcast with you right now and go to Vegas, and then I'd retire <laughs> to a small island. So everything that I'm going to say, take with a grain of salt of one mildly informed person in a C-suite. Uh, my personal belief is that inflation is going to start to settle down. I think actually the restarting of school loans And repayment on October 1st is going to suck a lot of money out of the economy and back into the federal government. And as a result, people's budgets are going to come down. And then I think that's going to actually impact inflation in a positive way as inflation's going down. I think when the Fed sees inflation going down, I think they're going to stop raising rates six months from now. I think they're probably going to start decreasing rates, and I think that's going to open a lot of stuff up. I only can talk for what we are seeing. Our top of funnel is as strong as ever. We continue to set all those new highs every month with the number of marketing qualified leads and free trials that we are bringing in. Where we are seeing challenges in our business is down funnel, and we're not losing more to the competition. We are getting a significant amount more of, I love this. My CFO is squeezing my budget call me in six months, I really wanna buy. So we're seeing a lot of no decision or delayed decisions and that's resulted in our elongating of our sales cycle. But we're starting to see shoots green shoots in certain segments of our business. And I'm personally optimistic that six months from now, we're gonna start seeing something turn. But from a marketing perspective, we're doing a couple of things. I've prioritized demand generation to keep in the top of that funnel filled because if your conversion rates at the bottom are shrinking, you've got to put more in to kind of get to the same bottom. I'm prioritizing stuff like thought leadership, getting our brand out there, not only through our podcasts, but also through our own white papers and internal uh, research that we're going and putting out into the market. And then we're prioritizing our product marketing team, really getting in there with our sales team and helping them figure out what's the value. How do we make a strong articulation of the value that we offer to customers What are the three points that every single rep has to hit on every single phone call? And so a lot of our product marketing team has actually turned into working on sales scripts with their sales team and then helping to train the sales team so they really can convey that value. And so those are some of the things that we are trying to do as a marketing team to help our sales team do whatever
2: they can to hit their number. It's intriguing to hear you talk about just how intertwined everything is at the organization, where it's not just, oh, we're fending for ourselves as the marketing team. It feeds into what the sales team is doing and so many other aspects of the organization. I guess kind of still on the go forward, if there's any sort of advice that you would pass along to any, you know, marketing executives that are in our audience that, again, may be squeamish or may have their own concerns about the economy and how maybe they should be having these conversations with the people that do hold the purse strings in their organization saying like, no, 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 like you have to, you know, you have to be able to give us some sort of a budget to go out there and get the results that you want. So
3: there's a couple of things. The most important thing is to always align yourself with revenue and not only align yourself with revenue, but align your entire marketing organization with revenue. And here we do a couple of things. My personal bonus is tied to the achievement of our chief revenue officer hitting his number, period, full stop. If you're a product marketing team and you're assigned to a specific segment, your bonus is tied to how that segment is doing and who they hit their number. So if there's ever any question as to where you should be spending your days or what you should be doing – Your compensation, where it hits you, is tied to how the company is doing, specifically how the sales organization is doing. So that's the first thing. That aligns incentives. And I'm glad you picked up on how intertwined we are with the sales organization because that's endemic to what we do. Every day I wake up and think about how can I help the sales team hit their number. That's a tough job being in sales. And it's our job in marketing to help make those folks successful. And the best way that I can do that is by A, aligning our folks with them, B, helping them really articulate value, and C, understanding the metrics deeply. And understanding the metrics deeply, I could sit here right now, I won't bore you with this, but I could sit here and tell you by every channel, marketing, inside sales, sales executive, by each of our six different segments, how many leads we've generated this month, how many have converted to demos, how many have converted opportunities, how many of them converted to wins. What's our ACV average contract size, average contract value, excuse me. I understand all that. I understand the impact of marketing. I could tell you exactly how many wins in August came from a marketing qualified lead versus an outbound sales lead. Why is it all important? Because it enables me to go with our CRO to our CFO and say, hey, this is the value of marketing. This is what marketing did for the sales team. So can you please give us some more money, particularly in the 2024 budget, so we can continue to deliver <laughs> this to the sales organization? You don't just want to go, hey, you know, I did a podcast and I think it had some impact, but, you know, I really can't prove it. Right. I can prove the impact of marketing by connecting everything that we do to revenue and to what we're doing to the sales pipeline.
2: I think that's a key thing for our audience to understand is if they have these ideas of starting up their own podcast or any sort of, you know, uh, edutainment outlet, I think there's obviously got to be some metrics that you can go back to leadership and say this is what it's actually doing for us. And to that end, Justin, I want to give you the final word uh, just because it's obviously great to have you back on the show in terms of anything that maybe we might have missed or final points related to starting up a podcast or a video series, anything that maybe we may have missed earlier in the conversation. Yeah, if there's one thought I'd give you about a podcast, that's gotta be integrated, right? It can't be stand
3: alone. So think about some of the stuff that we're doing here. When we publish a thought leadership report around use of AI in healthcare or the role of precision medicine, I then take the data and the stats from that, and then I find a guest to talk about precision medicine, and I'm like, hey, according to this recent research report that we did on precision medicine, X, Y, Z stat happens. What's your reaction? Then our sales team can take the podcast and they actually can push it out to a customer because what's a sales guy's favorite thing to do? Add value to a customer where you're not asking for anything in return. So you've got somebody who's stale, you haven't talked to for 30 days. Hey, listen to this podcast on precision medicine. Just thought I wanted to send it your way. Here's a link. Talk to you soon. So even our podcast, which doesn't have any revenue and will never have any revenue associated with it, because, again, it's all about thought leadership and brand awareness. It becomes a tool in our overall marketing arsenal that we use to go off and drive value for the company and also, again,
2: try to edutain our customers, our prospects and the market at large. It's such a comprehensive way of looking about it. And that's why I enjoy having you on the show, Justin, as you're able to break it down in a way that's very digestible for our audience. So I appreciate you being on the show. Hope we can have you on again down the line and certainly wish you and your podcast the best and appreciate you being on our podcast too to share some insights.
3: Well, thanks for having me. Hope everybody gets a chance to listen to Definitively Speaking. Love talking to you, Jack. And I'll definitely come back whenever you want me to.
0: Health Policy Update with Lesha Bushak.
1: As healthcare marketers scramble to build AI practices, many have wondered how the technology might manifest, both for good and for bad, in the current Wild West that exists with no regulation in place. The federal government has officially made one step toward defining that regulation this week. On Monday, President Joe Biden announced an executive order for AI regulation, including eight guiding priorities that would seek to, quote, harness AI for good and realize its myriad benefits while mitigating its substantial risks. The order requires federal agencies like the Department of Health and Human Services to develop responsible AI standards while protecting civil rights. It also requires companies to notify the federal government if they're creating an AI model that involves a national security or public health risk. For healthcare in particular, Biden wants the HHS to create a regulatory unit that can monitor new AI tools as they're developed, review them before they go into the market, and then track their performance once they're being used. The idea is to create a safety net that stops any potential harmful AI practices. But the executive order isn't just about reining in the risks of an AI. The White House also wants to see if it can spur and encourage innovation in healthcare through AI, like using the technology to improve access to care or create new drugs. Biden also directed the HHS to begin investing into initiatives like AI tools that can create personalized health and immune response profile for patients. The federal government also wants the HHS to see if AI can improve healthcare data quality and decrease administrative burdens. Initial reactions from healthcare marketers included concerns that more regulation could potentially raise costs for agencies. At the same time, responsible AI regulations might actually be, quote, a boon for life science startups, according to Dave Latshaw, CEO and co-founder of Biofee and a former AI drug development lead at Johnson & Johnson. As regulations become more defined, we can expect a surge in opportunities for AI specialists in life sciences, he said. Biden has given the HHS and other federal agencies a year to develop their AI regulatory plans. I'm Lesha Bushak, senior reporter at mm and
2: Trending,
0: And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending in healthcare this week. Hey, Jack.
2: Hey, Mark. So I think that we always talk a lot on the show about action that's coming out of the FDA. And last week, we had some big news that came out with the FDA issuing a warning to consumers to not purchase or use certain eye drops from several major brands due to risk of eye infection. The agency warned against the use of 26 over-the-counter eye drop products and said using them could result in partial vision loss or blindness. The eye drops are marketed by CVS, Rite Aid, Cardinal Health, and Target's Up and Up brand and Velocity Pharma, the FDA said. It also asked manufacturers to recall lots of the product, and I would be remiss to say I'm, sp- I'm sitting in the room here with two people that are wearing glasses, obviously we care a lot about eye care and vision and eye drops, obviously concerning any time that the FDA comes out and says don't use them. You could lose your vision you could experience vision loss whether temporary or permanent mark i want to go to you first like what do you make of all of that
0: as you astutely point out vision is one of the five senses jack and something we don't want to lose yes (laughs) so uh you know some warnings are more serious than others this one's no overstatement it comes on the heels of the fda's warning against using several other eye drop products due to microbial contamination that came earlier this year in May. And in that case, the CDC reported the use of eye drops contaminated with a drug resistant bacteria resulted in some patients experiencing vision loss, surgical removal of their eyes, and even death. All told, there were four deaths and 14 cases of vision loss reported among more than 80 infections of that rare strain of drug resistant bacteria. For those following at home, the strain was called Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And that had never been seen or never been identified, excuse me, in the United States prior to that outbreak, the CDC has also reported four cases of surgically removed eyeballs. So again, the FDA is waving a red flag here, and for good reason,
1: yeah, I agree with you, Mark, that um definitely there's some pretty serious complications associated with these eye drops, so it's good that the FDA has um you know issued a warning. Just hope that that warning reaches people who might be mindlessly choosing these eyedrops or using the ones that they have at home already without being aware um, whether or not this uh, warning will get to them, you know, is is another question, but definitely hoping that the FDA manages to communicate that properly to, to everyone who might be using them.
2: And I think it goes back to a key point that we've talked about a number of times on the podcast, whether with the FDA or the CDC, just how important messaging is, because to your point, Lesha, like the amount of times that I've gone into CVS to get eardrops or you name it, just anything that you think where it's like, oh, it's generic. This is what I need it for. This is the task. You, again, to your point, mind, mindlessly, you're just like, I'm just going to get that, just going to buy it and use it. But then if that's not communicated to me, the consumer, and I could potentially lose my eyes, have them plucked out of my head or, you know, die. That's, right. that's a really frightening- You would
1: assume that's not going to happen to you when you're picking eye drops from the pharmacy, you know? Yeah.
2: <laughs> but But that's incumbent on these agencies to be able to go out there and say to the public, like, listen, you need to be mindful. And certainly it's on these companies as well to remove the products from their shelves. But, you know, there is something on the consumer, too, to be like, oh, wait, I did hear about that. Are these the ones I'm not supposed to buy and avoid them, you know, at all costs at this point?
0: Yeah. And good point about, you know, the the media has to pick up this message and and run with it. We've seen some outlets do that already, but uh, they've, they've got to get that message out there. So great. What do you got
2: next, Jack? This one we're going to throw over to Lesha.
1: So I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the top nurse influencers on TikTok. While physicians and mental health professionals have taken to TikTok to reach patients, nurses have had a rockier relationship with the site. Several went viral over posting controversial videos in recent years, such as the labor and delivery X video in 2022. But as the platform continues to grow, nurses have created a niche of their own, Nurse Talk, where advice is parceled out with humor and enthusiasm. Whether they position themselves as comedians or educators, TikTok's top nurses have huge influence in the realms of women's health, mental health, and more. Some of the biggest influencers include Nurse Tara, also known as the official TikTok nurse, who has 1.3 million followers and creates videos about her work as a school nurse, including how she communicates with young students with nuance and care. Nurse Blake, who has nearly 1 million followers, is also a traveling stand-up comedian in addition to being a nurse, and he uses humor to discuss the trials and tribulations of working in healthcare. And there's Kojo Sarfo, a psychiatric nurse practitioner who posts videos in which he role plays conversations between clinicians and patients around tough mental health topics like depression and suicide ideation. It appears many of these influencers have come a long way since the controversial viral nurse videos gave them a bad reputation on social media. And these influencers are showing how to build trust with their audiences by being informative, supportive and funny communicators. So I don't know if any of you have seen uh, you know, some of these nurse videos on TikTok, um, but curious what your thoughts are in sort of this turnaround of events when it comes to nurses on the platform.
0: Yeah, many of us recall the viral backlash um, against that group of L&D nurses whose TikTok video shared patient behaviors that peeved them. So I'm glad to see that some positive representatives of the profession are stepping up to kind of rewrite the, the narrative of nurses on TikTok, Lesha. These influencers are racking up millions of views by using the platform for Gen Z patient education, informing what it's like to be a nursing student, and sharing communication tips. And Blake was pretty funny as well, playing the middle, middle America towns with his HCP-oriented comedy act. And since we're talking about best practices for various media, this is a best practice on TikTok. What's cool is the way these creators are using the medium I'm seeing this technique of videos where the TikToker plays multiple roles and uses that conversation to get a point across, like how to counsel a tween girl about signs of puberty or how to talk to someone who's having suicidal thoughts. It seems to be becoming fairly common on TikTok versus YouTube. Maybe it's also been used on other media platforms. If anyone's seen the TikToks by Dr. Flecken, sorry if I'm mispronouncing his name, he does it really well. Just thought I'd mention that.
2: Yeah, I thought it was interesting, Lesha. I mean, obviously, seeing some of these nurses that you've put on there, I've seen in passing some of their content before. I certainly remember the X video that came out last year and it was actually interesting I had a, um, a woman I went to high school with who posted a response video to that basically kind of saying that not all nurses have that uh, perspective about their patients or that feeling towards them and she went viral off of that. And I, That wasn't even from following her that was just going through my timeline and suddenly it's like oh hundreds of thousands of views from this uh, person I know so it's, it's interesting to see this obviously coming from uh, a magazine that I worked at for a few years we had a nursing section and it is such a tight knit community they are so passionate about what they do but you talk about kind of the the love hate relationship that they have with TikTok where yeah sometimes it can be lighthearted and and informative that way obviously i think they got a bad reputation certainly last year so it's interesting to see that kind of sea change if you will in terms of how they're putting content on the site and and things like that so i thought you did a great job with the piece obviously i appreciate any time that you are willing to go through and see what's trending on TikTok to be able to kind of take a step back and say, these are the people that are really making the most influence on the site and changing the conversation is is an important piece, I think, for our audience, certainly. So, I'm going to save everyone in our audience about two hours of their lives uh, because I watched Pain Hustlers last night on Netflix, which is the new movie starring Emily Blunt and Chris Evans, who I do love, and Andy Garcia for kind of rounding out that trio. Uh, It was released last week and it basically tells the story of the fictionalized story of Insys uh, Therapeutics, which I think a lot of people in our audience will remember for their opioid spray, their bankruptcy trial, and um, everything that came out of that. Back before the pandemic, I, I think that there was a uh, so it's important to kind of level set here. Dopesick came out and Dopesick won all of these awards and was very lauded for how it approached the opioid epidemic and for being able to really focus on the patient stories that were uh, featured in the series. And then I think every streaming platform really looked at that and they said, we need to do our own dope sick and we need to tell our own stories about healthcare malfeasance and how it affects the patients. And some have done a really good job. The Theranos uh, series that came out last year with Amanda Seyfried as Elizabeth Holmes was really great. But Over the summer, we've had Painkiller from Netflix, which was fine. It starred Matthew Broderick and told the story of Purdue Pharma with some artistic liberties. And then you have Pain Hustlers, which is telling another opioid-based story. And there's a lot of focus on kind of the sex, drugs, rock and roll aspect. There's a lot of this is what farm reps do to be able to get script lift from uh, doctors. And this is how they're able to get them in speaker programs and give them expensive gifts and paychecks and girlfriends and all that sort of stuff. It's not until about 90 minutes into this two hour movie that you finally get the, oh yeah, it's addictive to patients and they're ODing and they're showing up at the doctor's office because they want to refill and and really focusing on kind of the patient aspect. There is a lot of talk in the movie about the marketing uh, problems, And the messaging and all that sort of stuff, but for something that I think was trying to be so much more than what it was, maybe chasing after that glory that we all saw with Dope Sick a few years ago, kind of missed the mark on that end. I don't know if either of you have seen it or just even your own thoughts in terms of, I feel like we're starting to get into this rhythm of, hey, we're getting a a healthcare related movie or series every so often now.
1: Yeah, I didn't see it, but I did, uh, you know, see the trailer pop up on Netflix this weekend. And I'm glad you did end up watching it, Jack, because I was like, oh, I should mention this to the news team when I go back to work this week. I wonder if we should watch it. But um, I did also look up the reviews and I saw that it was getting horrible reviews. So that kind of um, made me avoid watching it immediately. But um, I'm glad you ended up watching it, Jack. But it I took guess, the hit for
2: us, Jack. I did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can even just say this for our audience. Tw- Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 23% fresh score. And they said, um, "What was their quote? Lackluster execution dooms this dramatic look at the opioid epidemic." So that's their take on it,
1: right? So, and and you mentioned that it was more of a, a focus on like behind the scenes, like what was happening um, in the pharma company itself to actually create these like dubious marketing practices um, in order to prescribe these medications rather than delving into the impact of that is that is that kind of what you? yeah saying?
2: they have one so it's again it's all fictional but they have one fictional patient they keep going back to who was a soldier recovering from cancer he gets on this drug and he for most of the movie oh i'm feeling great i'm able to go back to my job and it's not until the end and I, i'm sure it's for dramatic effect that they say oh no he's addicted to it there's at one point that he like bites out some of his teeth because he can't feel in his mouth anymore and that's really compelling that's one of those things where it's mm-hmm. like oh this is the real human impact but they Spend so much time talking about, you know, they they talk about uh, having sales reps who aren't necessarily medically educated or know mm. the product that well, but they have PhDs. They're poor, hungry, and dumb, and mm. so they were targeting. You know, they they even say in the movie too, we're not looking at doctors that work at the Mayo Clinic. That's for the Pfizer's of the world. That's for the Mercks and some of these big uh, companies. We're a pharma startup. We're looking at the lower tier. We're looking at you know doctors' offices and health clinics that you can find. It's all set in Florida, so it's all around the southeast, but they're sending these PhDs to look for equally dumb, they say at one point, I mean not dumb, but equally desperate doctors. They say at one point that doctors are just as horny and greedy as everybody else. So it really plays on that sort of narrative, which is true. I'm not I'm not here to absolve the industry of that by any stretch. But I think the patient stories, as any marketer will tell you, are probably the most compelling and while people can say oh yeah this is definitely kind of the more sin city aspect of it you kind of want to see how it's impacting your neighbor down the street your uncle people that you know and love
0: yeah and uh, great points uh, i don't want to you know duplicate any of that but like back in 2019 when the verdict was handed down uh, for Incise mm-hmm. uh, Therapeutics and John Kapoor, who the main character, um, you know, as, as you point out, is loosely based around, um, you know, it was a real turning point uh, in, the, in the opioid crisis because it put the entire industry on notice uh, that marketing abuses, once to, once excused with a mere monetary fine, could now result in jail time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he got several years and, you know, you're talking about doctors uh, and others who, you know, may have been complicit in overprescribing opioids. Doctors involved in the incise kickback scheme did get jail time. And, uh, you know, the government uh, in the case cited in-person meetings, phone calls and texts to inform sales reps that the key to sales was using the speaker program series to pay practitioners to prescribe subsists, which was that, I think, that mm-hmm. nasal spray. Uh, and, you know, we've seen uh, drug distribution companies, pharmacies also, you um, Grilled by lawmakers, you know, for for exacerbating the opioid crisis, and in some cases, uh, paying large fines, Um, and and so um, the threat of a real you know criminal prosecution um, was a wake up call then. And so you know the that I think they feel like the industry has has you know gone through that um, you know perhaps mind shift, hopefully uh, from a couple of years ago. And yeah, I was sort of surprised to see. Uh, you know, Netflix go back to the opioid well so soon um, after, um, you know, uh, pain. Um,
2: pain killer was pain the one that came over the, over the summer. summer sorry,
0: thank you that, that you brought up earlier in the program. Uh, but, uh, you know, as you say, it goes to the to the point that um, healthcare care uh, bad actors uh, and, and their malfeasance is becoming a reliable sort of villain, you know, for mm-hmm. entertainment. And so perhaps we could, you know, get used to seeing this more often.
2: Yeah, and, and I wrote in the review that you can read on the site that it's interesting that, like, obviously we're in a point now where pharma is trying to figure out its footing post-COVID, where they were obviously lauded as heroes because they came up with these life-saving vaccines. Now we're back to the conversations around drug pricing, around the opioid crisis, around what the future of healthcare looks like. And it's interesting to see these stories still coming out. Like, this was a story that happened in 2019, could have been put out in 2020. It would have been timely then, but it is interesting to your point, going back to the well. Another thing that readers or listeners may remember from the Incise scandal was the music video that they put out where they had a uh, sales, uh, sales executive dress up as Subsys, their nasal spray opioid, and do this rap video and dancing around and everything. And it was shown at a conference for their sales reps. Chris Evans does that in the near the end of the uh, movie, which I'm sure if you are not familiar at all with that saga, you're like, oh, this is so abhorrent, whatever. But then immediately when I'm watching, I'm like, oh yeah, that was insights. You know, when that trial was going on, that was used as evidence four years ago. And that was all around, um, with headlines and media coverage. So it's, you know, if you got nothing else to do, if you have two hours, but I think even if you have Netflix, they got so many other things, go watch something else, go or read the book. I mean, it was based on the book, um, pain hustlers, which it's, it's cited in the article. You can go find it there. I'm sure that that's more entertaining and it was di- more disappointing just because I love Emily Blunt and Chris Evans. So
0: it's a very, very good, not not to underestimate their performance. No, not at all. And it's uh, a, a look at the uh, sort of or underbelly of pharma marketing. You know, hopefully those practices are not, you know, as common. But thanks for, for watching that, Jack, and for reviewing it. And thanks to everybody out there for joining us in this week's episode of the MMM Podcast. <laughs> Be sure to listen to next week's show when we'll be joined by Roku's Chris Schneider for a preview of the upcoming MMM Media Summit coming up on November 8th. That's it for this week. The MMM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Buschak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizi M. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing.